It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Good to have you here, as always. And it's also good to have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, and it's the hour of the 20th anniversary of the criminal invasion by Bush and Cheney of Iraq. That's right. 20 years ago, the United States invaded Iraq. It wasn't the first time the U.S. invaded a sovereign nation. It wasn't the first time the U.S. lied to its global allies and sacrificed diplomacy at the altar of the military-industrial complex. It wasn't the first time a U.S. president subverted Congress and the Constitution to wage war. It wasn't the first time the U.S. government allied with the American press to lie to the public about why we were killing and dying overseas. It wasn't the first time the American people were manipulated into giving up their civil liberties and embracing xenophobia in the service of a war on boogeyman. And it wouldn't be the last time. Today, we're looking back at the U.S. invasion of Iraq, a war that the George W. Bush administration started by lying to Congress, the public, and NATO to start. A war that cost the U.S. nearly $3 trillion, killed more than 4,400 U.S. military personnel and wounded another 32,000 and killed between 275,000 and 306,000 Iraqi civilians. It destroyed the government and infrastructure of Iraq, increased global terrorism, and exposed the United States as untrustworthy hypocrites in international diplomacy. Our guests today will be Dar Jamail and Matthew Ho. Dar Jamail was an unembedded reporter in Iraq during the war and has written about the profound trauma and political rage of frontline reporting. Matthew Ho is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. State Department and was deployed during Iraq's occupation. We'll speak to Mr. Jamail and Mr. Ho about their thoughts on the enduring legacy of the United States invasion of Iraq. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, it was 20 years ago this week when a country that possesses and has used weapons of mass destruction preemptively attacked another nation they claimed was developing weapons of mass destruction. Even though that turned out to be a lie, a tremendous amount of mass destruction ensued. David? Dar Jamail is an award-winning independent journalist who went to Iraq to report on the war and occupation. In 2007, he was awarded the Martha Gellhorn Award for his Iraq war reporting. And in 2018, he won an Izzy Award for Excellence in Independent Media for his climate crisis reporting. He is co-editor with Stan Rushworth of We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth, and the author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, as well as Beyond the Green Zone, dispatches from an unembedded journalist in occupied Iraq. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dar Jamail. Thanks a lot, David. Great to be back. And Matthew Ho is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy. Mr. Ho took part in the American occupation of Iraq, first with a State Department reconstruction and governance team, and then as a Marine Corps company commander. When not deployed, he worked on Afghanistan and Iraq war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department. In 2009, he resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Matthew Ho. Thank you so much for having me with you, and, and thank you for having this conversation. 
Welcome indeed, both of you, and both of you are very knowledgeable of this criminal history by the Bush-Cheney administration. We had on recently a retired judge, Andrew Napolitano, who was for over 20 years the legal commentator on Fox News, and who called years ago, as well as renewed his call, that the Justice Department should criminally prosecute George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for war crimes. This was an invasion based on lies. Ron Paul, a congressman from Texas, said Bush and Cheney lied their way into the Iraq war. There were no weapons of mass destruction. The claims were based on lies, misleading witnesses that had an axe to grind, and terrible reporting by newspapers such as the New York Times, one of its darkest chapters in its long history. Before the invasion on March 20, called shock and awe, imagine a phrase like that, so befitting of an empire. Before that started, one group after another desperately tried to reach George W. Bush to speak with him in the White House. Some of these groups had come back from Iraq and had firsthand information. These groups wrote letters. They're all on Nader.org for you to peruse. These letters were by veterans groups, church groups, physician groups, business groups, labor groups, consumer groups, political scientists, local public officials, women's groups, student groups, and even retired intelligence officials groups. And none of them found the White House even acknowledging their letters, much less having a meeting. So this was a criminal operation from day one. Bush later admitted that oil had an important factor, but they justified it on overturning the dictator Saddam Hussein, who was our dictator for many years because he was anti-communist and he was against the clerical regime in Iran. And we gave him all kinds of weapons, intelligence, even the materials that were made into chemical weapons. That's been documented by a hearing in the U.S. Congress. So with that background, Dar, I want to ask you to back up a bit because you witnessed the results of a horrible crime under George Herbert Walker Bush, the so-called first Gulf War, which was easily preventable because some 20 or more years before, a dictator in Iraq had his tanks rumbling toward Kuwait, and the British sent a team of paratroopers to Kuwait, and the dictator rolled his tanks back to Baghdad. That could have been done to avoid the first Gulf War, but the regime of George Herbert Walker Bush, hailing from oil-rich Texas, had other reasons for not preventing that war. And he bragged about precision missiles because he wanted to tell the American people that the missiles were not going to blow up civilians. And deep in a shelter in Baghdad, over 600 women, children, and men were huddling in an air raid shelter when shock and awe was underway. Could you describe that? Thanks, Ralph. Yeah, the Amaria bomb shelter is what it was called, and it was back during the so-called first Gulf War when all of the media was beside itself with excitement in these so-called precision weapons. And it was one of these dark, dark parts of U.S. history that when I was educating myself, doing background on U.S. policy in Iraq over the decades, that was one of the things that jumped out and really underscored 
how intensely the Iraqi people have been suffering as a result of U.S. policy there over the decades. And that bomb shelter, it was between four and 500 people, men, women, children, elderly, who were sheltering in there during the air attacks of the first Gulf War. And Bush clearly used it to make a statement where launched a guided missile straight down literally the roof of the bomb shelter. So when I went into Iraq my first trip, I was very, very moved by this and wanted to see it with my own eyes and felt it was something that people need to know more about. And so I went there. It was the first place I went once I got myself landed in Baghdad in late 2003. And you walk into the place and you can feel the loss of life. And there's literally a bomb crater coming through the roof, almost like an upside down flower where the rebar is kind of spread out in a perfectly circular symmetry from where the weapon punched through the roof and then a giant crater in the concrete floor underneath it. And there are flowers and pictures of the deceased just spread all around the inside of the area. And there are parts of the walls where people's flesh were literally seared into the wall, literally smooth parts of the wall where you can literally run your hand across and feel the difference in the smoothness of the wall from where parts of people's body and their flesh were literally burned into the wall. And it's something that the American people, just like the rest of this war, the deep, deep permanent impacts on the Iraqi people and the American soldiers that went there and the aftermath that as horrific as this story is, this is the kind of thing that people absolutely need to understand that this is what the government of this country has done and, and continues to do in various ways today. And it was one of those occurrences that I really felt it literally impacted me deeply enough that like, this has to be known, you know, we need to start there as people need to know the truth of what's being done in their name. Name it again. The Amaria bomb shelter. Seared in the memory of the Iraqi people, almost totally forgot by the American people in whose name the first George Herbert Walker crimes were committed. The U.S. military ordered by George Herbert Walker Bush also blew out the drinking water systems, the electrical systems. It was an attack on the civil infrastructure, which led to a lot of collateral human damage, as the phrase goes. Deaths, refugees, families without water, electricity, and one of the hottest places in the world, and much more. Well, not to be outdone, his son, George W. Bush, with Dick Cheney goading, launched a long-planned invasion of Iraq. In fact, right after George W. Bush reacted to 9-11, the planning started with Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and other military officials to take down Saddam Hussein, who they accused was involved in the 9-11 attack, another lie that was proven to be the case, both at the time and subsequently. Now, Matthew Ho, you were very much involved in this. And I think our listeners would like to know about the evolution of your thinking as you spent one month after another, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Could you describe your experience and what led to the position that you finally took? Yeah, thanks for having me with you, Ralph. It's a real honor to be with you and to be with Dar. 
The evolution, I think, was one where I, I think a lot of people, we deny our current generation's role in history. We think that somehow we are exempt from what came before us. So you can understand the, the fine details or the, the broad contours of American history. You can understand things, how the doctrine of discovery led to manifest destiny. You can understand how the genocide of the first peoples here, the African slavery, the conquest of Hawaii and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and leads into what happens in Central America. You can understand all that, but then you can then say to yourself, but my generation is different. And so I think, you know, you look at the lineage, the line of history that you deny, and I think that's what was occurring with me, where I understood these things, but I thought that we were somehow going to be different. And saw this. I mean, that wasn't just me. Saw this. I went in the Marine Corps in the late 90s, January 1998. And so we had plenty of colonels and generals and sergeants major who had been in Vietnam. And to a man, they all said things like, we are never going to do another Vietnam. And then, of course, we had two Vietnams within a couple of years, a few years, right? Afghanistan and Iraq. I think one of the things that we do is we compartmentalize periods of history or we assign arbitrary start dates. One of the things Chris Hedges just reminded me of, maybe I didn't know it, maybe I've forgotten it, was that, you know, 1972, the United States were providing weapons to the Kurds in Iraq at the behest of the Shah of Iran to try and overthrow the government in Iraq. I was born in 1973. So for my whole life, the United States has utilized violence to try and achieve its political objectives in Iraq and in the larger Gulf region at the expense of the Iraqi people. So my whole life, the Iraqi people have been through suffering. The 70s were incredibly turbulent, coups and such. But then, of course, the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, which kills over a million people, which is a proxy war for the Americans. You have the first Gulf War we talked about. Then, of course, under the Clinton administration, you had those murderous, horrendous sanctions that killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, as well as the fact that the United States... From roughly 1992, 1993 through 2003, before the invasion, was dropping bombs on Iraq two or three times a week. You know, I mean, so there's this consistent line of violence directed against the Iraqi people to achieve American political aims had been established for decades. And I went into it thinking that somehow we were different. I also, too, I believe one of the things that you think is that you have this idea that somehow you can be a, a moral agent, that your own agency will, will overpower or that you will, in your life, in what you do, you will do good things. So if I go to this war, I can affect the people around me because I am going to be good and I am going to be moral. I'm not going to do bad things. And that's a complete fallacy. That's an incredible mistake. When you go into the military, you get a lecture on military justice and the rule of law. And they do mention the Constitution. Now, there were no declaration of wars in the first Gulf War or the second. These so-called anemic resolutions didn't even apply. They applied to the Afghans seen after 9-11. But even so, they did not qualify to be a declaration of war. The government in both wars violated the UN Charter. That's a treaty we belong to and actually launched right after World War II. There are all kinds of Geneva Conventions that were violated. Didn't any of that occur to you before you became a truth seeker and a dissenter? Didn't that ever occur to you, even though you're not a lawyer? Because all people who go into the armed services are given those kinds of lectures. It did, but you lie to yourself. 
You lie to yourself, you rationalize it, you excuse it. You'll never meet a band of men and women like the U.S. military who excuses away their own responsibilities by saying things such as, that's above my pay grade, or I'm not a policy maker, I'm a policy executor. That's not my, so you excuse it yourself. You, you make rationalizations, you lie to yourself. Like I say, I thought that I could do good in the midst of this massive force, but you become an agent of the immorality of the war. There's no escaping that. You are used for the war's purposes, no matter what you think you personally are going to do. And then you tell yourself other lies. You tell yourself, well, I'm a good officer. If I don't bring this company of Marines over to Iraq, some other guy's going to do it, and he's going to get them killed. So you make those lies or you tell yourself, well, I'm just a junior guy. I'm a mid-level guy. When I become a senior guy, I won't make these mistakes. I won't do these things. I won't. And we won't even let yourself say a crime. You further lie by calling it a mistake, right? So that's something that you, you see over and over again, this use of, of language to hide the reality of what we did there, which, you know, absolutely was a crime for which no one has ever been held accountable for. I want to turn to Dar. You know, Dar, there hasn't been enough attention to the perfidious role of the media here. Not only did all these groups that I mentioned, and together they had millions of members around the country. This is the National Council of Churches, for example, is one of the letter writers to George W. Bush pleading to meet with him and other groups in the White House before the invasion and were not even acknowledged, much less invited there. The media was so disgraceful. None of these groups got any coverage whatsoever. A lot of the media was looking at the New York Times, which was listening to Judith Miller, who had all kinds of fabricated stories on page one. This is a really shameful, disgraceful chapter in the Times. And the Washington Post wasn't much better, but at least the Washington Post did a mea culpa later. But you looked at the TV, the TV anchors for the major networks had right next to them a retired admiral or general that, who were spouting the Bush-Cheney line. And Phil Donahue, who was on MSNBC at the time, he was trying to get the other critical truth-seeking view on the run-up to the war in Iraq. And his NBC superiors ordered him to have three guests promoting the war to every guest criticizing the war. And suddenly he was told that he had a week to vacate his offices and his staff and threw him off the air. This was Mr. Wright of the NBC hierarchy, which obviously was connected with General Electric at that time. So give me your view, because you saw from the field and you were essentially a freelancer that broke one story after another in Iraq, Dar. So you saw the embedded nature of them. Pat Sloyan of Newsweek refused to be embedded, which is one reason he won the Pulitzer Prize. But give us the scene of how did the media, free speech, seeking truth, become just a toady, a total toady of the prevaricating Bush-Cheney war machine? Well, you said it, Ralph, it was the media's role in this. I mean, we have to go back to what's taught in public schools as far as what Matthew pointed out at the very beginning. It's like we do not have accurate history being taught about the foundations of this country being built on genocide of the Native American population and slavery, nor have we seen any 
truth and reconciliation or anything around any of that. So given that that's the foundations of this country, there's not been adequate justice brought around that, let alone bringing truth into history as it's being taught in the public school system, for example, here. So Iraq really in Afghanistan being a continuation of that, that this mythos of the U.S. being the beacon of democracy in the world. And in reality, we are citizens of the most brutal empire on the planet. If you look at how many bases we continue to have around the planet, the U.S. military being used as basically an economic sledgehammer to bring people into alignment. And, and Iraq's a perfect example of that. And I basically deployed myself in a very naive, overly idealistic way to Iraq because I was absolutely outraged at the just blatant propaganda in the media. I mean, it was it was off the charts. I mean, people here are aghast at the kind of propaganda that we see in, say, North Korea. Yet, if you look at the media coverage during the lead up and the selling of the war to Iraq, I don't think we really can stand on any firm ground in pointing the finger at a regime like North Korea for having propaganda. I mean, everybody can remember seeing the graphics on TV, you know, Saddam Hussein's head with a big target over it or a bullseye as though he's the only human being in Iraq. I mean, the propaganda was just, you know, designed for a two-year-old and it was extremely effective on up to Colin Powell's dog and pony show at the UN of holding the vial of whatever the white, you know, powdered sugar they had in it, claiming, you know, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction to the Judith Miller, amazing New York Times dance with, you know, getting anonymous quotes from anonymous sources in the Bush administration, being Dick Cheney, feeding her information and her willfully putting it out to then him going on all of the news shows on Sunday and saying, look, even the New York Times reported this. So the media not just being used as a tool, but willingly used as a tool by the empire, by the government to go in and make the case to the American public for war because the people had to be brought along. And despite the protests, despite all the facts being out there, the UN weapons inspectors, despite everything, you know, all of the history of what the U.S. had been doing in Iraq for decades, that again, all of this was completely, we're at year zero right now, history starts now, this is how it is because this is how we say it is. And then against that backdrop going in, that continued in the occupation up until around 2006 or so when things had been going so bad for so long for both the Iraqi people and U.S. soldiers deployed there that public opinion finally turned and the media basically was forced to start to report on it. This is a very important juncture you just pointed out. Because right after the invasion of Iraq and the toppling of the Saddam Hussein regime, George W. Bush sent his most trusted investigator to come back and say, we found weapons of mass destruction. Well, he went there in April and he spent several weeks there searching, penetrating, exposing. And he comes back to the White House and he says, sorry, boss, no weapons of mass destruction. You think George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and his cohorts, Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl and other neocons, say, well, let's pull back here. No, they kept blowing apart Iraq in what 
sociologists called the ultimate sociocide of this society that never threatened us. Iraqis would meet soldiers, U.S. soldiers, say, why are you doing this to us? What have we done to you? And the soldiers started saying to themselves, why are we here? They don't want us. And so there was a poll commissioned in 2005, Dar. I don't know if you know about that, Matthew, by Zogby Public Opinion Poll. They got cleared to do a poll of U.S. soldiers, Army, and Marines in Iraq by the Pentagon. The Pentagon said, okay, it's going to be a very representative, professional poll. And this is in 2005. And they polled the soldiers, and slightly over 70%, including a majority, a slight majority of Marines, said the U.S. should pull out of Iraq within 6 to 12 months, which is a logistical period for being able to do that. You think that would have got publicity? It got a tiny article in the Associated Press and was blacked out by the New York Times and Washington Post. So, you know, we have to go into this history because it's going to happen again and again and again. The warmongers are active again on the Ukraine war now. More and more, we're moving toward a conflict with Russia. There will be an incident. There will be fighter planes. Who knows what will happen? Because there's no break on our government. It's as if it was a dictatorship when it comes to foreign policy. The people are not organized to do much about it. There are groups that you all know, Veterans for Peace and others, to try to pull it together. But it seems like we never learn from history. And as one person once said years ago, if you don't learn from history, you'll be condemned to repeat it. But I want the listeners to hear from you, Dar, about your experience in Fallujah which was quite a sizable city in Iraq, and the U.S. military was surrounding it. This is one of the darkest chapters of the dark history of our invasion of Iraq. And you were one of the only people there. I don't know how you escaped, but indicate the weaponry that was applied, including the phosphorus bombs. What was it like? A brief history of of Fallujah under U.S. occupation was this was a city that Saddam Hussein always struggled to control, so basically left it alone. And when U.S. military rolled into Fallujah in the early days of the occupation, there was no resistance. People, I wouldn't say they welcomed them, but they did say, all right, let's see, things, you know, can't hopefully can't be much worse than they were under Saddam, so let's give them a shot. And so they... You know, they left them alone, but then soldiers started occupying a particular school. People were protesting it. They wanted the school to be available for their kids. The military did not leave. That ended up, there was another protest. Shots were fired into the protest by some soldiers. And that basically started animosity in Fallujah between the military and the people living there. And so resistance escalated rapidly, and Fallujah became a very regular hotspot for the military. There were always, you know, consistent attacks happening. And so it became really a symbol of resistance to the point where by April 2004, the city was, well, we had the incident with the Blackwater mercenaries operating in the city, and then several of them being caught and targeted, killed, and then parts of their bodies hung from a bridge on the outskirts of Fallujah. And that's really the incident that kind of brought things to a head when The military encircled the city, started sniping into it regularly. And that was around the time it was in about within a week of that was when I went into Fallujah. 
during that siege with a group bringing in humanitarian supplies to a small clinic. And when I was in there, there were men, women, children, older folks being brought in either dead or who all claiming that they were being shot by soldiers who were surrounding the city. And they were coming from different parts of the city at different times over the couple of days I was in there, all telling the same story. And it was really shocking as at the time as a really a, a cub reporter still getting up to speed on on the atrocities that I was witnessing on a regular basis over there that, you know, this is my country doing this. And, and it was really a hard thing to watch firsthand, literally small kids dying on tables, being shot in the necks and in the heads and in the shoulders by U.S. snipers and bleeding out while Iraqi doctors were doing their best to try to save them and watching literally the bodies piling up in the back of this makeshift clinic. And that really set the stage where, you know, I had friends go out in an ambulance trying to pick up wounded people in bodies and that ambulance being fired upon and people literally diving down in the back of it while bullets were going through the side of it. And this had become commonplace. Iraqi people were basically saying, yeah, welcome to the party. This is what's being done here. And then that that set the stage. You know, the city couldn't be taken during that month without what would later have to be done was, you know, full scale assault using a lot of air power and artillery. And that, of course, right after Bush was won re-election that following November 2004, then the city within days was essentially encircled and parts of it just generally leveled. White phosphorus was used regularly around the city, which is a violation of UN protocol, where that's a weapon that's not allowed to be used where in an area where there could be civilians. The Pentagon in itself had admitted that at least 30,000 people had in Fallujah had opted not to leave. So a direct violation of UN conventions, along with, of course, intentionally sniping and killing civilians, as I saw firsthand in the first siege of that city. And this type of barbaric behavior, coupled with the torture, which literally my first week in Iraq, I was walking around talking to people that were talking about torture stories, not just in Abu Ghraib, but in other military detention camps around the country. And then that story, I, I was writing about it then, but of course it didn't break in the mainstream until Cy Hirsch forced the issue. I believe it was in March 2004 when that story started to hit the mainstream. But, you know, these types of tactics were commonplace early on in the occupation and then continued all the way through it. And, and then later I, I would write a book about soldiers in Iraq and interviewed some of these people that were engaged in a lot of these actions and then later became like Matthew Ho here, really woke up to the fact of what was being done and and started to take stands for justice and to speak truth to power about what they had seen and, and what they had done in Iraq as well. And back in Washington, there was like a rabid two-party support. You'll probably remember when John Kerry was running for president, he was asked about Iraq, and he said, well, he would have put more soldiers in Iraq. There weren't enough. And then he made the infamous statement that he wouldn't have quit Fallujah. This was after the first departure before the Bush regime went in big and wiped out so many innocent people. Matthew Ho, you were there with all kinds of soldiers and 
What were they thinking? You know, the reporters don't really ask soldiers what they're thinking, whether they're in the field when they have trouble speaking freely or whether they're back home. Were there people saying, what is this crazy nonsense? What are we doing here? We're just making more enemies. Or they just wake up every morning and say, I'm just doing my job. It was mainly the latter, Ralph, mainly the latter. Occasionally, you'd have a conversation, be a short one. Does this make any sense? You know, what are we doing here? You know, if I was an Iraqi, I'd be attacking us too. I mean, I had that realization when I had a command of 153 Marines and sailors in Anbar province. And I had that realization that if my young men were young Iraqi men, 51 would be fighting us, 51 would be in Abu Ghraib, and 51 would be dead. I mean, so that type of putting yourself in the other's shoes, I think as you were there, the time went on, that continued to sink into you. But then you go back to this, again, lying to yourself, making excuses, giving it other purposes. It becomes about taking care of the people around you. You make up these reasons. You lie to yourself. You refuse to acknowledge. But it was known. I mean, it was known. I'll give you an anecdote. When I have in our, our company headquarters, we had a little satellite television dish. And one of the channels we got was Fox News. I don't know why. It was one of the few English-speaking channels we got. So we used to have that on in the company headquarters a lot. And one day, and this was in 2006, so the violence was very high. One day, my first sergeant said, hey, sir, I'm not going to have that Fox News on any longer because it's upsetting the Marines. And what he meant was that it's just spewing propaganda that they know is not true, and they're getting really upset by that. So they certainly understood it. You saw it, but you didn't talk about it. You lied to yourself. You kept yourself focused on the mission. You kept yourself busy, and you put your head down and ignored it and claimed that you were a professional warrior and it was above your pay grade and all those other things. You also have this other aspect of it that I think we have to address is that when a young man joins the Marine Corps, goes into the infantry, he goes to 13 weeks of boot camp of recruit training. Then he'll go at that point, I think it was seven weeks of infantry school where he goes through boot camp, then he goes to a specialized school for seven weeks to learn to be an infantryman. Then he goes to his unit. It's an infantry unit. And all they do is train to kill. So those young men have been conditioned for months, for years to kill. And it's a scientific conditioning. It's based upon extensive academic research as how to best condition young men to kill. And then you put them in the bubble. You put them in a culture of the Marine Corps, worships violence, worships the history. The Marine Corps is what keeps America safe. It goes out and kills the bad people. And then you send them to a war like Iraq. And you tell them that you're going to avenge 9-11. You are going to protect your family, your neighbors, your friends from another attack. You call everyone over there terrorists. And so you can start to see how that bloodletting, that bloodlust is so easy. And one more thing I want to bring up, and Dart was talking about this and references, the level of violence in Iraq and the Iraq war I don't think people appreciate, even the numbers that we state in terms of the number of Iraqi civilians killed directly are way, way below a level estimate. The Iraq body count is typically the organization that's cited. Well, the Iraq body count gets its numbers by utilizing media reports, English-only media reports, to count up how many Iraqis were killed in the war. So you just, just on that basis alone, you know it's a severe undercount. 
But the other thing, too, is you look at the number of Americans killed in this war. You have 4,500 American soldiers killed in the Iraq War. There were 3,600 contractors also killed in that war who in any previous war before the privatization of the military and the outsourcing of war would have been wearing a military uniform. So you have to add that 3,600 in there. But we also had medical care and body and vehicle armor that allowed us to survive things that would have killed us in the early parts of the war, let alone in previous wars. And the best way to understand how great the volume of violence was, and the numbers are conflated because you can't really pull the Iraq war apart from the Afghan war when you talk about American veterans because so many went and were involved in both wars. But VA estimates at least a quarter million American veterans have traumatic brain injury from their time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, it's an astounding number. But that's what they keep coming back to. And that's because, again, we were surviving attacks, explosions, blasts, bullets that in previous wars would have killed us. And so you understand the magnitude of that. I mean, I had Marines in my command who survived 10 roadside bomb attacks on their vehicles in one seven-month tour. It's even worse, Matthew. The number of soldiers who got sick, who were injured, there was sandfly disease, There were all kinds of ailments coming their way from being in the field. They were sold contaminated water from U.S. contractors in Kuwait in the early months of the war. And we found that the Department of Defense was not only lowballing Iraqi casualties, they were lowballing U.S. casualties. They couldn't lowball the fatalities, but they were lowballing the number of injuries. First, they disregarded the sickness and the disease. And then they defined injuries as only those incurred in a firefight, not going to the fighting area or injured in other ways in Iraq. And we proved this because we filed the Freedom of Information request and we got that information back. And they admitted it. And it was on 60 Minutes for a program where they interviewed a paraplegic who went back to Illinois and he said, I'm not even injured enough to be counted, he said, in a haunting segment on the 60-minute program. My Marines used to go out and look for roadside bombs, route called rough clearance. And when we came back to the United States in 2007, again, some of my Marines have been blown up 10 times. There was no standardized traumatic brain injury screening that the Marines went through. The Department of Defense had no guidance on this. I mean, so you have for years where American soldiers were suffering these attacks where the Department of Defense was just, you know, shrugging and saying, okay, we'll see what happens. Now, the important point about all this, because I don't want to center, I don't want to center the Americans in this. I want to center the Iraqi people, is that we had our body armor. We had our vehicle armor. We had our hospitals. We had our medical care. The Iraqi people did not have that. So whatever violence we endured and survived, the Iraqi people suffered an immensely greater level. And so the hell that they went through and continue to go through, because, you know, even if right now, and and the thing about the violence in Iraq is it hasn't ended. Even now, dozens of Iraqis die every month in violence, in militant violence, you know, and, and that doesn't include the Iraqi army, the Iraqi paramilitaries, the various militias out there, the Islamic State. You're talking about dozens of Iraqi civilians are still dying every month in violence caused by these wars. 
even worse than that is say we had a magic wand and we were able to wave it all away and say everything is fine now. Their children are dying because we poisoned their water and their land. Fallujah has higher cancer rates than Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Every day, just as like what happened in Vietnam and in Laos and Cambodia when we poisoned those lands because of our war, every day Iraqi parents our Iraqi mothers are delivering stillborn babies. They're delivering babies who are born with the worst deformities and disabilities you can possibly imagine. So even if we had a magic wand and would wave away all the political violence that is still occurring in Iraq, their children are dying and they will be dying for generations because we poisoned their water and their land with our war. Matthew brought up some really, really important points. I mean, going back, you know, the sanctions, more than a million Iraqis died during the sanctions. These were 12 years of the most brutal, harshest economic sanctions in modern history. And, you know, we have to remember the Madeleine Albright quote where she's being interviewed by Leslie Stahl and asked when the statistic came out that at least half a million Iraqi children had died because of the sanctions, because of lack of medical care, lack of supplies and lack of enough food. And Madeleine Albright infamously said, yeah, we think the price is worth it. So the brutality of the sanctions leading up, that was the state the country was in when this war was launched. And then we had all these false promises of reconstruction and Iraq's going to be the new democracy in the Middle East and the new Iraq, as Condoleezza Rice called it. Well, that was the country that existed when this war was waged. And then it got worse because none of this reconstruction happened. And you talk about the lack of water and electricity and adequate medical care. None of this improved during the occupation. In fact, overall, it just continued to get worse. And we do need to talk about the Lancet study when it comes to the true figure of Iraqi casualties, which the high end of that figure, and this is a grossly outdated study, but from one of the most prestigious studies available on this count, in the high end figure when it was released was over 800,000 Iraqis directly or indirectly had perished because of the occupation. And as I said, that's now grossly outdated. So comfortably, the figure is over a million. And then when we talk about the brutality of, you know, Fallujah, again, just to add a little bit to what Matthew just shared of the amount of depleted uranium used there. And I personally spoke with several soldiers who said, yep, that's what we are using right along with the WP, the whiskey peat, the white phosphorus. And I went in there, the most recent trip I was into Fallujah was in 2013 when I was working for Al Jazeera. And I went to where they had built a new hospital and they built it in an area where such an enormous amount of fighting had occurred and depleted uranium was used, including bombs and missiles, that that hospital was located right on that area. And a lot of the doctors I interviewed in there spoke directly to that. And this is a city where the amount of deformities in the kids was so bad from exposure to toxic chemicals and radioactivity from the DU that a very, very religiously conservative city and some of the religious sheikhs and imams had asked people to stop having kids because I came out of there with photos of babies and I wrote an article for Al Jazeera and Al Jazeera would not run the photos. And I can't say that I blame them for that because they were so 
atrocious, these deformities of literally Cyclops babies, these entities being born that were just, the deformities were so incredible that it did not look in any way, shape, or form like it could even be a human being to the point where we couldn't run those photos because of the, you know, there was concern of the editors that the amount of trauma that people would see. And I, I of course, I disagreed. I, I think people need to see this, but it's hard to even articulate the level of suffering. And, and this is the country that exists today, as Matthew just said, that I got to leave, the military got to leave, at least for the most part, but Iraqi people can't leave. And this is what they have to live with today. It's not just Iraq that was aware of what was going on. The whole Arab world was witnessed to what was going on. And it's small wonder that the Palestinians, the Yemenis, the Libyans are terrified at what they believe the U.S. is capable of doing to them in addition to what has already been done to them. And, Dar, you point out that right after the first Gulf War, when the sanctions were imposed on Saddam Hussein, and there was a lot of corruption involved in that, that they had a prescribed list of chlorine. For example, they couldn't sell chlorine for drinking water. They couldn't sell child catheters because it was believed they could be turned into some sort of stabbing weapon. And of course, when the physicians, U.S. physicians went over there and estimated a half a million Iraqi children died as a result of the sanctions, and Bill Clinton and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright thought it was worth it. That didn't make much news here, but all over the Arab Islamic world, it's all news. And they know what can happen once the brutish potential of these warmongers in Washington and their oil industry backers can unleash. Just in the interest of time, I want to give Steve and David a chance to pitch in here. Yeah, I'll start. Matthew, I wanted to pick up on something you touched on in the beginning when you talked about rationalization. And we've had Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson on the program a number of times. He was chief of staff of Colin Powell. As they worked in the State Department. You've worked in the State Department. And we've talked to Chris Hedges about being on the inside versus being on the outside. Is it possible, say you were Colin Powell, and I'm sure, you know, he's a good soldier, and he feels that I will be more effective doing this on the inside, and yet he does that presentation at the UN. When you're in the system, is it possible to make change, or is that just a pipe dream? I think, regrettably, it is a pipe dream. The way our brains are, the way we have been programmed through societal evolution to want to remain within the group. You know, this goes back to our ancestors being scared to death of being told to leave the campfire and they'd have to go sleep in the woods with the wolves, right? So our brains have evolved and, and there's been a lot of scientific research into this that explains why people stick with the group, why the mob mentality exists, why almost all whistleblowers you'll ever encounter endure severe mental and emotional health trauma. It's a very difficult process. There's not much of an incentive to speak out. There's not much of an incentive to differ. It's not going to get you anywhere. And so, yeah, I mean, it's regrettable that I do think that being in the inside, you're just not going to affect the change that you want to change, that you want to see. The and, you don't, and you don't have organized citizens out there, although there were marches, I'm sure our listeners saying, speak of the demonstrations in the U.S., mm -hmm against the upcoming Iraq war in Washington and all over the country and all over the world, millions of people. 
but it never reached a political critical mass in order to change any minds in Washington. David? Before Colin Powell died, there was no mea culpa. Rumsfeld never apologized. Let me ask you about General Tommy Franks, Paul Bremer, George Bush, Condi Rice, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, and George Tenet. What do they owe the American people right now, 20 right. years after? What, what do they, besides an apology, how could they make this right? You know, and as well to the Iraqi people. And they made it right to the people that mattered to them. You know, I'll differ with Dar in the sense that Reconstruction, I'll agree with him that Reconstruction was not a success in Iraq, but it certainly was a success in Northern Virginia and Maryland. If you look at the amount of money that the United States spent on war and the war industry, in 2001, the defense budget was $331 billion. The budget that the president just released the other day is $885 billion. I mean, that's an amazing, what, 170% increase in 20 years. And if you know the Washington, D.C. area, you know where that money went to. It's been totally transformed. You know, it used to be places like Silicon Valley and New York, Tulsa and Dallas because of the oil, right? Those used to be the wealthiest parts of the United States. But this century, the wealthiest part of the United States are the D.C. suburbs. If you look at whatever different type of ranking you have, five of the top seven, six of the top nine counties, wealthiest counties in the United States are D.C. counties. And where did that money come from? It came from the wars. Because if we look at the budget, the federal budget over the last two decades, you can see that non-defense discretionary spending has either remained flat or has declined over the last 20 years. You have to take out the Veterans Administration to get this number correctly. So any spending other than Department of Defense or veteran spending and some militarized police spending, the entire federal discretionary budget has either remained flat or declined over the last 20 years, right? Even as we've gained 50 million Americans over that time. So the, the war was a great success for certain people. And that's who these people, these Bremers, these Bushes, these Cheneys, these Wolfowitz, owe their loyalty to. I think they're criminals, and I think the same of those who populated the Obama administration. It's the same small group of foreign policy cobble that, you know, perpetuates this American empire. And, you know, I, I do also want to go back real quick to something Ralph said, though, about the political aspects of this. We cannot forget that in the 2006 midterms, the Iraq war was the most important aspect of that election. In 08, you had a candidate that was viewed as an anti-war candidate. He certainly didn't perform as a president, as an anti-war president, but Barack Obama beats Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people will say that well, was, he was pro, of the Iraq war. He was pro-Afghanistan. He was pro-Afghanistan in 2000. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, oh, yeah. I mean, by a massive amount. I mean, let's not forget President Obama, summer by 2011, there's a quarter million man army in Afghanistan, 100,000 American troops, about 40,000 NATO troops, and 100,000 contractors. So he was for a big war. But this is one of the things, too, about what the Iraq War and the Afghan War does in terms of lasting effects on, on how the United States conducts wars now. After the political consequences, and the only thing that saves, I think, Obama from political consequences from his Afghan surge is the fact that 10 million Americans were in the process of losing their homes because of the Great Recession. I think what you have then, what occurs, is the White Houses and the Pentagon look at these wars and say, we cannot politically be invested 
in a war where there are American troops coming home. Even though we're not covering the arrival of the coffins at Dover, we cannot take these losses. And so in starting in the Obama administration, you see a shift to how America fights its wars now, where the wars need to be remain hidden. So you use proxies, you use contractors, you use drones, you use special operations troops, right, and keep these wars hidden. And that's how we can have, you know, and this is according to Brown University, cost of war, journalists like Nick Terse. We've had American troops in combat in 17 countries in the last decade, and almost no Americans know this. And I would venture to say almost no members of Congress know this. And so as long as you have other people doing your killing for you, the American public won't notice and it won't have a political consequence. We've got to break through the mass media's obeisance to the military war machine in the American empire. Otherwise, we're just talking to the choir. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with Dar Jamal and Matthew Ho, and we want to have them tell us very quickly how people can contact them. Dar? Sure. I maintain a website. It's simply my first and last name, .net, darjamal.net. And thanks a lot for having me on the program, Ralph. And thank you, Matthew. And thank both of you for your ongoing work. Matthew? I'm the uh, member of the Eisenhower Media Network. So if you go to the website, Eisenhower Media Network, Lawrence Wilkerson is actually a member of that as well. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm Matthew Piho, P as in Patrick, and the last name is spelled H-O-H. Listeners, please react. Give us your responses. Contact these brave people who have spoken out truth to power again and again and again. They want to hear from you. Tell them what you're going to do in your community. Tell them how you're going to contact your two senators and representatives. When the analysis is complete, Congress is the generic factor of complicity here, and they're using your own sovereign power to do this in your name. Thank you very much, Matthew Ho and Dar Jamail. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dar Jamail and Matthew Ho. We will link to their work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Let's take a quick break to check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Report of Morning Minute for Friday, March 17, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Biden administration has approved the $8 billion Willow oil drilling project on the north slope of Alaska, led by ConocoPhillips, despite a massive push by climate activists and environmentalists urging the White House to reject the proposal. There's simply no justification for President Biden's decision to approve a massive new oil drilling scheme that will lead to decades of air and climate pollution, said Winona hotter of Food and Water Watch. This decision is part of a disturbing and disappointing trend with this White House. President Biden refuses to take the necessary actions to rein in climate catastrophe while issuing rhetoric that professes concern for the existential threat that we all face. He cannot have it both ways. Promoting clean energy development is meaningless if we continue to allow corporations to plunder and pollute as they wish. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulkyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. We'll close out today's show with highlights from Ralph and Patti Smith's anti-war rally and concert tour in 2005. The song is Awake From Your Slumber, produced by the Hudson Mohawk Independent Media Center. Awake, little one. Awake from your slumber. Get them with the numbers. Hit them with the numbers. Oh. 
we have a moral obligation, a citizen obligation, to get out of that country. Peace has this soft image by the warmongers. The rascals, the charlatans, are always ready to accuse people of undermining the troops. the troops is to get them out of there and bring them back here safely, not to let them die and kill in Iraq. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Dar Jamail and Matthew Ho. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now a few podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Wireless Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. We should never forget what the illegal Bush-Cheney political and military machine backed by profiteering corporations, did to the innocent Iraqi people. Hi, this is Jimmy Leewert, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and welcome to the wrap-up. Before we get to Francesco DeSantis and our new In Case You Haven't Heard segment, we have a little left over from our main roundtable on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The Iraq War is such an issue in 08, I believe this, and I think others do too, that Bush signs the status of a forces agreement to get the United States out of Iraq by 2011 in early summer 08 in order to take Iraq off the campaign trail, right? In order to not have to have McCain talk about it as much. So you may have had that effect there as well. And then you have these studies from Harvard and I think Minnesota that say that Donald Trump wins in 2016, because in counties that had disproportionately high Iraq war casualties, they went for Trump. And that's what puts him over the top in Ohio and Michigan, I think, and Pennsylvania, a couple other places. And that this latent anger about the Iraq war and Hillary Clinton symbolizing it still has an impact in 2016. So I think the political consequences were there, not right away, unfortunately, but I think they were there. And I think that's why you see this, one of the big reasons you see this shift in American war making. Other reasons too, because the industry wants it, the army wants to fight tank wars in, in Europe, and the Navy wants to have $15 billion aircraft carriers. You can't justify that with Afghanistan and other countries like that. So. Well, you know, that's what Hillary Clinton did. She voted for the war when she was later asked, well, didn't you know the National Intelligence Survey before the invasion raised serious questions about the claim that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction? And she said, well, I didn't have time to read it. And later she described the slaughter in Iraq as, quote, a mistake. That's what she used, just what you said, a mistake. Well, the numbers of Iraqi deaths that Steve pointed out were direct 
fatality figures. Indirectly, you had starvation, you had denial of medical care because that all collapsed. You had all kinds of insecurity in the streets. You had refugees, you had lack of food, which is why people who've covered this war say that at least a million Iraqis lost their lives as a result. And some of them are still losing their lives because the anti-personnel weapons, which should be illegal under the Geneva Conventions, these little mines, some of them looked like candy, are strewn all over Iraq, and kids are picking it up and being blown to bits. Let's not forget the beneficiaries here, Lockheed Martin, mm. General Dynamics, Boeing, Raytheon, Grumman, and all the rest of the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about in unmistakable, urgent terms in his farewell address in 1961. Names have to be named here so that we don't think it's some great glob. It's usual profiteering motive, secret motive, revenge motive, you name it. But it's not waging peace. It's not elevating the role of the United Nations. It's not having arms control treaties, as Matthew Hull has talked about a great deal. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. From Jewish Currents, last May, amid rising anti-Semitic attacks by the far right, Anti-Defamation League President Jonathan Greenblatt announced that the organization would devote more energy to combating anti-Zionism and described Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations as, quote, extremist and the, quote, photo inverse of the extreme right. Within the group, staffers dissented to this rhetoric. Greenblatt called a special meeting over Zoom to address this dissent, ending by stating, quote, If you can't square the fact that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, then maybe this isn't the place for you. The Congressional Workers Union continues along its long road. The union reports 100% of staffers for Senator Ed Markey voted to unionize. Once recognized, this will be the first ever unionized Senate office. Additionally, while the Republican majority in the House has sought to arrest unionization efforts, a new report from Demand Progress's Kevin Mulshine, a former counsel at the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, contends that they can continue their efforts under the Congressional Accountability Act. In Georgia, judges denied bail to 22 of 23 citizens engaged in peaceful protests against the Cop City Project. These protesters are charged with, quote, domestic terrorism, according to NPR. Many prominent civil liberties organizations signed a letter objecting to this decision, including Amnesty International, the National Lawyers Guild, Greenpeace, Human Rights Watch, Palestine Legal, and the American Friends Service Committee, as well as Code Pink. Additionally, an independent autopsy published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution suggests that, contrary to the police's statement at the time, murdered protester Manuel Tortuguita Tehran was in a cross-legged, seated position with their hands raised when they were shot to death by Georgia police. From the Hill, following a two-year battle, Gigi Son has requested that President Biden withdraw her nomination for the Federal Communications Commission. This follows three confirmation hearings and a nasty media campaign against Ms. Sohn, who co-founded Public Knowledge alongside Lori Racine and David Boyer. The opposition to her nomination came primarily from Republicans, but Democrats caving on this nomination is just another in a long pattern. The FCC is now left with a 2-2 partisan deadlock. 
Editors for Saturday Night Live will strike if they can't reach a deal on their contract by the end of the month, the LA Times reports. According to the Motion Picture Editors Guild, editors are paid, quote, far below industry standards. From The Guardian, in Kingston, New York, a post-industrial town where the median per capita income hovers around $32,000 and nearly one in five residents live below the federal poverty line, rents have skyrocketed up to 30% in the last three years. Now, using emergency rent control measures, a board of tenants is seeking an unprecedented citywide rent reduction. Amid fierce resistance from the landlord lobby, the issue is now winding its way through the courts. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we speak to Samuel Levine of the Federal Trade Commission, which back in 1968 was the first government agency targeted by what came to be known as Nader's Raiders. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long.